I want to thank uh, all those who pray for me, especially weeks that I preach. I need it, and I feel it, and I thank you for it. I was thinking uh, about a concert that my wife and I went to recently, in which one of the performers played a set of bagpipes. And if you just pick up a set of bagpipes and you don't know what you're doing, it doesn't look like anything nice. It looks kind of awkward and shapeless and these weird things sticking out and funny tassels waving and you're like, what is that? And before it can make any noise, you have to fill it with something. Anyone know what that is? Hot air! Lots of hot air. And even then, it doesn't play music unless you put it in the hands of someone who has a tune to play. Someone with the skills to make it sound like something nice. And then you get those haunting, fiery tones coming out of there and it stirs the blood, especially if you've got any Scottish blood in you. So, bagpipe, hot air, funny things sticking out, funny tassel. God is the one playing the tune. He always is. And for that, we are grateful. I'll try not to be too shrill. <laughs> so my title today is Busted, Waiting, and Content? Yay, barely. The word busted, look this up on dictionary.com. It says broken, fractured, seriously damaged, no longer working or operated, penniless or bankrupt, Failed, in trouble, caught doing something bad or wrong, busted. Anyone here feel like they have it all together and remember where they put it? No, that should tell us something. Self-perfection. The look of perfection is always a lie in this life. Real perfection, the kind that God does on our insides, makes us feel and sometimes look a lot more like bagpipes or a house being remodeled than like a postcard. Disappointing start? How about something more uplifting? Happy anniversary to me and my wife. Twenty-three years. Twenty-three years ago this afternoon, a lot of you showed up at our reception. Thanks for coming. And thanks so much for all the support over the last 23 years. Every marriage needs it. Marriage sometimes gets particularly tested during Christmas, doesn't it? I hear some chuckles out there. Ask my wife about the year we waited until Christmas Eve to wrap all of our gifts. And she slowly watched me turn into a slug zombie who couldn't even speak English. Anyone know of marriages undergoing trials and tribulations recently? Or perhaps we should ask, do you know of a marriage that has no trials and tribulations? Because if you do, it's not biblical. Here's why. 
Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 7, 28 that married people will have trouble in this life. So I guess that's what we should expect, Hallmark films notwithstanding. <laughs> I see you've seen some of them. We know our enemy hates marriage for its truth and beauty to say nothing of its transforming effects on everyone involved. Marriage requires discipline, which our enemy and our flesh refuse to accept. This causes conflict and hypocrisy. On such a massive scale, most of us probably don't see it. Because faithfulness is both universally admired and attacked. It is affirmed and undermined in every culture. We condemn the unfaithful, but we are all unfaithful to God and to each other at some point. We condemn sin, and we sin. And we really don't want to be reminded of that, do we? Merry Christmas. But in marriage, we can't escape it, can we? There's that other person right there seeing us for who we are, especially the parts we'd like to hide. Marriage forces us to be vulnerable. Along with marriage, conflict, particularly war, strips us down to our essence, naked and raw. We find out who or what is most important when it gets down to life and death, and we have to choose sides. We find out what we can survive without. We learn how long we can last in uncomfortable situations. We see what really matters and what really doesn't so much, both in circumstances and in people. You learn we can follow people we don't like, that we can be rescued by people who don't know us, and that we can rebuild a new life where nothing is the same anymore. Marriage and war engage us behind the masks we wear and bring us to our knees in very personal ways. In both, we must accept our need for God, our sinfulness and our ability to harm others, our mortality and our helplessness. It's hard say the least. Andrew Peterson in his song Love is a Good Thing writes it this way. It can hurt like a blast from a hand grenade when all that used to matter gets blown away. There in the middle of the mess it made you'll find a good thing. Yeah, it's worth every penny of the price you pay. It's a good thing. Love is a good thing. Love even in marriage and war? Yep. Love grows best in the humility, wounding, and dependence that marriage and war force us to live in. And it is a good thing because it comes from a good God. He's good even when allowing marriage and war to bust us up and break us down because he intends to put something indescribably great in the place of every Lord we ever served himself. But we can't on our own steam set aside our own selfishness and idolatry. Only he's strong enough to change us. So our plans and dreams get busted by life, by the war we were born into spiritually, and in a sometimes amusing but very intentional way by marriage. 
We are not allowed to stay as we are. No matter how noble our intentions, no matter how devout our, our obedience, we are busted. We must be made whole again, and we cannot do that by ourselves. Not by our own efforts. All of our idols, especially our images of ourselves, must be destroyed. So God can take his rightful place in our hearts and in our eyes. Nothing can be withheld from this demolition. It all has to go, or it will work against something so much better. And this goes on throughout our lives. This is not a stage to push past. This is a state of being while on this planet Earth. Doesn't sound very comfortable, does it? Doesn't sound very inviting, does it? You sell that to your non-Christian friends and relatives? Come get busted up. It'll be fun. But what if you consider the alternative to life being so hard that we're forced to admit our need for God? Imagine a life where we have no clue as to our desperate situation. Or watch the news. Plenty of examples of clueless living and the harm it causes. God did consider it. He is unwilling to allow us to suffer so. So marriage and war are important clues towards understanding our situation. And they are the beginning and the end of the Bible. Marriage is in Genesis 2, followed by the next stage in war in Genesis 3. But then the final battle in Revelation 19 and 20 is followed by a marriage in chapter 21. These images and the understanding that goes with them must be important for us to remember. Why? Why put a love story in the middle of a war? And why does conflict seem to happen in the middle of so many love stories? They must be connected, not just to each other, but to a deeper reality. Perfect time. So in the middle of this mess, middle of our discomfort, our pain, our regret, our guilt, and our confusion, comes this celebration called Christmas. The story of, frankly, a bunch of very bizarre incidents. I mean, if you were watching on the news and saw things like angels appearing and traveling kings looking for a baby, you'd go, what the heck? Our world is nuts. Well, it is, because we're in it. But with, along with these bizarre incidents and these incredibly fulfilled prophecies, there's some very ordinary people who find themselves in the middle of the unforeseen, trying to make sense of it. Some of their lives got rewritten almost overnight, and they didn't have very many options. That sound familiar? They knew God had called them, just as we know God has called us. They knew God was leading them, 
just as we are led. They knew their role was important and had meaning, but they didn't know exactly how it was all going to turn out. Neither do we. They didn't get a map when they were told to start walking. Remember Abraham? Go to a land I will show you. Just start walking. Yep. Okay. Everybody pack it up. We're heading somewhere. I can't imagine what kind of whispering went on behind Abraham's back as they were heading off. We are surely, however, a part of the same story that they are a part of. We serve the same God, and he wrote the Christmas story. So he's writing our story too, map or no map. Doesn't mean we'll always understand everything as we go. I'm sure Mary and Joseph had their share of pinch me, is this real moments. It doesn't say that Mary scratched her head over everything. It says she pondered them in her heart. But I'm sure there was a fair amount of head scratching in there too. But at some point, all of the characters in the Christmas story, and all of them in the life of Christ, who end up following him, all of them come to the same point where they show that they are no longer confused about whom to follow. They have questions, some have objections, but they come to a point of acceptance. They believe without always understanding all details or the schedule. They learn to trust the God who called them. So how do we get there? With all of our questions, our objections, our confusion, our problems, how do we get to that point of acceptance? How do you get to acceptance in the middle of a life being demolished and remodeled? Show of hands, anyone here ever been part of a house remodel of any kind? Okay. Have you ever done it with a spouse? Yay! Brave people! How many are willing to do it again with the same spouse? <laughs> Good for you! That's not easy. How many of you have had to change something in the way of your expectations or communication in order to stay arm in arm with that spouse? Mm -hmm. We don't get to have it all our way, do we? Comedian Brian Regan lamented that life would be so much easier if it weren't for others. <laughs> Guess what? We're others too, aren't we? Mm. So how do we reach for trust and for faith while God uses marriage and war to bust us up and remodel us? I think first we have to adjust our expectations. There has been talk many years about the idea that if you just come to Christ, everything else will be fine. It will all get worked out. That's your experience? Most of us have been through something pretty serious in our lives. Something tragic. Something terrible. Something just really hard. 
God doesn't promise us a rose garden. We have to realize we're not going to get the ideal or the comfortable most of the time. And we probably can't afford that anyway. We have to acknowledge that God's plans for us are not designed primarily to fulfill our preferences. We're not three years old anymore, are we? Cleanliness is good, but a little dirt on the biscuit won't kill you, will it? I spilled some biscuits yesterday. We ate them. <laughs> Order is good. But you can't live in a house and keep it spotless at the same time. I didn't used to have ABD, but now I have a home and I have kids and I have ABD. <laughs> because when you own a home, is everything always put away? No. So you go to a room, you see something needs to be put away. Well, it doesn't belong in that room. So you go and put it away. Where does that take you? To another room. Guess what you see? Something else that's not where it belongs. You can ping pong all over the house, just putting things away, and it, it still never stays that way, does it? Our kids are famous for saying, well, where's my so-and-so? And we're like, well, we had to move. Well, you didn't tell me. No, we're not gonna, sorry. You live in a house with other people, things get moved. Those of you empty nesters out there going, yeah, just one or two other people now, things will stay where I put them. Mostly. Everyone loves a crisp, clean, uniformed soldier, but in the foxhole, ammunition and loyalty matter a great deal more than polished boots. God is far more concerned with our transformation than about whether we are pleased with it. He has eternal pleasures forevermore at his right hand in store, but in the meantime, we have lessons to learn and fruit to produce. You see, we matter to God's plan for others, not just for ourselves. So we have to adjust our expectations for living with others and for others living with us. God doesn't need our input about how he's going to do things. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we have to remember our relationships are more valuable than our feelings, our stuff, or our circumstances. Money doesn't stick around, especially at Christmas. My brother and his wife just moved again. They moved here over the summer. They moved yesterday into a new house. And my mom says that when you move, it's like you walk around with a hole in your pocket. Money just keeps falling out of it all the time. Those of you who've moved are like, yep, been there. Products, services, and companies change names, login procedures, and operating systems too fast for most of us to keep up with. Feelings change even faster, especially when we're young. Does anyone need more stuff? Seriously, how many storage facilities do you drive past on a daily basis? Someone is building bigger barns for their harvest. Jesus warned us against focusing on our stuff or even on the non-physical things associated with this life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the weeds and thorns that choke the word, worries and cares and deceitfulness of riches. 
we have to be willing to cut the fat, to let go of what God has supplied when it's time. He will always supply our needs, no matter what he calls us to leave behind. Our relationships, though, are much more important, especially with those fellow soldiers in the foxhole when everything blows up. We need to hang on tight to our brothers and sisters, our good friends, and be a good friend. Sometimes that means telling people that they're headed the wrong way. Ask the question. Look for the evidence. Call sin what it is. We all need that sometimes. And we must all do that for someone else, sometimes. Marriage and war show us these things repeatedly. We have to learn not to wait for the perfect time for anything. You never know when God may call someone home unexpectedly, or call you. Make the most of your relationships. You do not grow weary in doing good, even during a remodel. So, we adjust our expectations, remember to put relationships above more temporary things, and we remember that we are called to learn to wait. Want to slow time down? Be silent for 10 seconds. forever, doesn't it? Especially when you're young. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We're that way with God. At least I am. Are we coming back yet? Are we coming back yet? <laughs> Have you fixed this thing yet? We yell about traffic. We fuss about our slow computers. We all complain about waiting. We're forced to spend a great deal of time doing it, aren't we? This is nothing new, even for God's people. The Israelites waited 430 years in Egypt, much of it in slavery, for the Exodus, and all of its fantastic, violent glory. The Israelites waited another 400 years between the prophecies of the Old Testament and the coming of the king on Christmas that began the New Testament. The disciples had to go through the Passover night the Friday of death, and the Saturday of nothingness before Easter came. And every Christ follower who has ever died has died without yet seeing the final fulfillment of all we believe is coming. All of us are still waiting. Christmas reminds us that God's timing is perfect even when we have to wait. The shepherds waited in the fields, and then the angels surprised them. No warning. Nothing on the calendar. The magi waited and traveled for two years to find the king. Mary and Joseph were just in the middle of their ordinary life when angels show up and start talking to them. And with Anna and Simeon, oh, what examples of faithful, patient waiting upon the Lord's perfect timing. I think they would both say it was worth it. 
And we readers like to skip over the 28 years of waiting between the flight to Egypt and the beginning of Christ's ministry. It's a long time to wait and be content. Good thing Jesus is the Prince of Peace. You notice he's never called the Prince of Fun. Although, really, wouldn't you be a little suspicious if you were? Though God is certainly the originator of play and playfulness and laughter and excitement and passion, there's something so important in the understanding that we need peace. Peace between us and God, peace with our human selves. There are many admonitions to seek peace and pursue it, not just peruse it. Peace is important for us to keep not just for better sleep at night, but for effective witnessing and ministry. Even while we are waiting, listening, expecting, and watching, we are meant to have peace. Even while we are getting busted up and remodeled, we are meant to have peace. God intends for us to find the prize that the world will never find apart from a savior. Elusive contentment, a calm confidence, a certainty in the main person in the universe, no matter what circumstances or feelings we face. Each of us who has that becomes a reason for the world to raise its eyebrows and say, what's the deal with them? Can I have that peace too? Can I be content? Content. Really? With all the junk, the questions, the injustice, the pain and suffering, the confusion and the mess? God expects us to be content? Well, he offers us peace and contentment. He won't force it on us, and we don't have to take it. There's a reason that Philippians 4.7 calls it the peace that surpasses understanding. We aren't going to understand everything that's wrong with this world. Dang it. But that's not what brings peace. Suppose we could understand it all. Suppose we got all the answers to our questions and could see the whole picture the way God does. Would that heal the pain? Would that raise the dead? Would that free the captives? No. It wouldn't. All of our problems from sin would still be here causing the same problems, we would still need a Savior. And thankfully, we still have one. We have a king, a priest, and the ultimate sacrifice, as the three gifts of the Magi foreshadowed. God has given us the perfect gift, exactly what we needed. He's given us someone like us, who understands why we want to know and struggle to wait and complain about being remodeled. Hebrews 2.18 and 4.15 give more details. Jesus gets it. Even when we don't have answers to the question, even when we're still hurting, he gets it. He is what we most need. 
Jesus reminded us in John 5, 39 and 40, that he is the place to find the one thing no one else can offer. Life. More than relief from pain, more than our needs supplied, more than strong health, more than straight thinking, more than all the right laws or rules to be enforced, more than answers, we need Jesus. Beyond his saving work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we need him and his Holy Spirit every moment. Because we are in a love story and in a war where we are called to wait. Too much is going on for us to keep up on our own. Too much is at stake for us to hide or try to stay comfortable. And too many are involved for us to handle or figure out. So we must wait in faith beyond our understanding and remember that we are meant to have peace in the waiting. So go to the one who is betrayed by his close friend. Go to the one who exhausted himself healing the hurt and teaching the ignorant and misled. Go to the one who knew loneliness, hunger, and poverty. Go to the one who explained simple mysteries to the educated intellectuals and whose wisdom confounded the clever. Go to the one who faced the accuser undaunted, who faced death unhesitating, and faced torture indefatigable. Go look that one up. Go to the one who sets captives free, raises the dead, and proclaims the year of the Lord. Go to the one who went to prepare a place just for you, for you. Go to the one who loves you as you are, who died for you while you were yet in sin. Go to the one who is acquainted with sorrow, who bore our iniquities, by whose stripes we are healed. Jesus knows. And he understands better than we do what's going on on the inside of us and in our world. And he cares more than we can use words to describe. No matter how busted we are, or how exploded we feel, or how much hot air we're full of, no matter how hard the war or the marriage, no matter how many idols we've tried looking for what only God has, he has never left us. Remember how the father of the prodigal in Luke 15 was already looking for his son's return? No one had to go find the father and say, hey, your son's back. He was the first one to know. He was looking. Go to him. Stay with him a while. Christmas is a great time for stepping back and reflecting, for taking another look at the big picture, God's rescue plan that involved the impossible, the indescribable, and the completely incredible, all at the perfect time. And it's all true. It all happened. Which means all that is prophesied to come will also happen at the right time. The best of stories is not over. The best is yet to come because God is infinite. We will never use him up. He's too big for that. 
There will always be more of him to fill us to overflowing. So go to him. Go find the baby in the manger. Go find the child king in the house. Go see the teacher on the hillside, the rabbi healing in the synagogue, the innocent man dying on the cross. Go see the empty tomb, the stranger on the road to Emmaus, the presence behind locked doors, and the Son of God sitting at the Father's right hand. Find the peace he gives, even when nothing else makes sense and there's no answer yet. See him. He came for you. He has a place for you and plans for you, even in a war, even in a marriage, a remodel, or a disaster. You are so important to him. He will not turn you away, no matter what your past, no matter your questions or concerns or objections. He has peace for you while you wait, busted and content for the coming of 